Hello, um, welcome to the new Empire podcast. Um, I'm Andy and I'm here today with Graham, Eleanor and Matt. And we're going to be talking about... Matt, what are we going to be talking about today? Right, well, we, we had a big vote on our main Facebook uh, thing and everyone said the thing we really want you to talk about is diplomacy and foreign relations. So we're going to talk about economics instead. Um, and why, some, why is that? Some good reasons. I'm glad you asked me that. Um, we, we noticed that we kept putting off the, recording the podcast about foreign relations. In fact, we put it off for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, and it was very clear we didn't want to do it. Uh, and we did some rooting around, talking amongst ourselves in why we didn't want to do it. Uh, and, and there's really a bunch of reasons. For me, I think the stuff about economics comes before the stuff about the foreign relations. It, it, it's actually, and I'll try and talk about more in this podcast about why that is, but it underpins the stuff about the military and the foreign sides of the game absolutely build on the ideas of, of, of economics and value and worth. And if you, you, you can't really talk about those things without talking about this stuff first. Uh, so that is a key reason. The other is we kind of keep eyeballing the foreign stuff and we know there is, you know, we're currently making some changes to it. We've had a lot of discussions with players. We're looking at some elements that we think are working well, some elements we think are working badly. And actually, we never want to do a podcast on something when we are in a state of flux about our own thinking on it, simply because we might be saying something and then just changed our mind on what we think about it the next day. It, it, it's nothing, you, you can't talk confidently about what you're trying to achieve with the game when you're still in a state of analysis over it, over some parts of it. Um, and so for both those reasons, really, we, we kind of just said, oh, this is crazy. Yes, we said we'd do foreign stuff first. And we just can't. We just can't. So we want. We, we're going to do economics first, and hence why we are all here, really. Um, so um, we know who you, me, and Graham are. Hmm. Um, Eleanor, what do you do? Why are you here? I am here because I'm the uh, player-facing face of economics, I suppose, for want of a better term. Um, I'm the boss specialist civil servant, so I live in the hub and count people's money and write down on pieces of paper what they've paid for things. So I have to report back what's paid for boss seats and things like that, how much money is coming into the, uh, the, the Senate budget and things like that from that source. And I'm the person probably who spends most time as a crew member talking about aspects of economics with players. Yeah, and with us, actually. I, I think, you know, it's fair to say whenever me and Graham have got a question about or, or Raph have got a question about what something is worth or what is, you know, mm. what is happening economically in the game. The person we go to is Eleanor. Um, I occasionally look at the pledge and then ask Eleanor. OK, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so the, the question I was going to ask was, um, isn't economics incredibly boring and... Um, why should I sit through this podcast, I guess? <laughs> well, we were just talking about before we started recording that we, we will try and put this podcast in, in probably in two halves, really. Um, I think the first half is the second half. Let's talk about the boring bit that no one wants to hear about, which is about economics. It's about the run on the bourse and inflation and, and, and those kind of very uh, monetary aspects of the game that, that, that I think a lot of people will think of when they think we're going to talk about economics, and, and which two-thirds of our player base are not interested in. In the same way that two-thirds of our player base are not interested in the battles, or two-thirds of our player base are not interested in magic, and so on. So what, we're, what we say, we'll try and put that, that at the, the second half of the, of the podcast, really. The first half, though, is it, it, what we want to try and talk about is the role 
that economics plays in a game in terms of the way it changes the whole nature of the LARP game, the way it, it fundamentally reshapes everything that is happening in the field and, 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 and just literally change it. You know, for me, economics is what makes empire low fantasy instead of high fantasy. That is absolutely based on the idea that things have worth and value and that and that money and resources are limited is an idea that affects every part of the game and is nothing to do with what the current price of the Wayne of Mithril is. Or, or that is simply a, a, a far-reaching consequence of it. That is a, a symptom of the underlying disease, if I could call economics that. So, And I think that's interesting to, to a lot more people. You know, The people who said, oh, I'm interested in the foreign stuff, I'm interested in the military stuff, None of that makes sense until you understand the role that economics is playing in, in the whole game, basically. How much do you see that reflected on the field, Eleanor? I think there are probably three approaches to, to value that I see on the field. Um, there's the one which is most obvious, whichever I'll encounter, the, um, anyone who's ever seen a copy of the, the, the regularly updated Thrifty Squid, uh, where they'll see this is what we think the... Um, the going rate, the market rate for all of these um, resources are, and we're not talking about the boss resources here, but the manor, the metals, the, the crafting uh, items uh, and the herbs. And there's a lot of people who that's that's their baseline. And that is across the field, broadly speaking, the baseline. But it's the approaches to that that vary. So some people use that as absolutely gospel. That's what they're going to use, broadly speaking. Then there are the people who they know what they need and they know how much they need it and they've placed the psychological value on what they need so they will pay more than that because it's important to them in that moment and i always find it a little bit funny when people laugh at people having that approach like they're doing it wrong like that, <laughs> it always tickles me when somebody pays what might be termed over the odds for something in the in the public auction and it says that well that person needs it why shouldn't they why should that be a point of humor but and then at the opposite end of that is the the trade that goes on in the field. Um, so a lot of the the players I interact with a lot are are traders, one kind or another, and it's the choosing to have a discussion about what it is you need this for and being willing to sell it for below the market rate, for want of a better term, as a means of support as a, a again it's a psychological support i'm in favor of what you're doing i want to facilitate you to do it so i will let you have it at a cheaper price or we'll work out a deal so politics um, uh, role playing role playing oh, okay if you think about look at our nation briefs look at the guides look at True. the benefactors uh, look at mediators you see over and over again this idea we pushed when we created the setting that money and what your character wants to achieve or create or, or cause are linked. And so sure that the correct value of a, a Wayne of Mithril might be four thrones of Wayne, but if you want this thing to happen, you may sell it for less than that because you want this thing to happen. It, it's role playing. It's just the cause for that. It might be politics. It might be anything. I think, I think it's important to remember that there's more than just the coin for resource trade as well. There's an awful lot, particularly within the, the artisan resources, um, where it's relative value. So trading, people will often trade one for one, even if they wouldn't buy and sell them for the same prices, because it's a reflection of the fact, well, I need one measure of this and you need one measure of that. Well, that's great. Um, so it's not always about um, money isn't always the third sort of the, the, the third 
part of the triangle. Sometimes it is it is trading direct. That is interesting. I mean, the, the very concept of that is the kind of thing that makes me want to play a character that would literally go out and trade one for one in one half of the field and then sell the high-value one in the other half of the field. <laughs> arbitrage. <laughs> arbitrage, we call that. Taking advantage of uh, small price differentials to make a profit. Uh, inefficiencies in the market. I, I think it's... Um, you know, I, I always find it interesting when the game started in the first couple of years, there were a couple of people who were or some sort of segment of the player base who were, were very much, you know, why would we bother having money? We, you know, money doesn't do anything. Uh, we need herbs and mana crystals. Why don't we just have an economy based on those? And that seems to have gone pretty quiet now. People have kind of settled down and, and accepted money and, and for, for actually for all the reasons why money is used in the real world. Uh, well, that was... Oh, because it is uh, handily exchangeable in small denominations. You can't cut a mana crystal in half, but you can go down to a single ring. You can't expend it. You don't want a currency where the that the, the you simply use it. Uh, people don't want loaves of bread as a currency. They go off. Uh, there's a whole. If you look up on on Wikipedia articles about money, you'll find that there are a whole set of qualities to money that make it really, really valuable as a means to create exchange. And for me, I'm often interested in people talk about what's the value of uh, with Mithril, what's the value with uh, White Granite? And I'm fascinated by the question of what's the value of money at the moment? People don't think of it in those terms, but for, but, but actually from a purely economics potential point of view, coin is just another commodity. If you're buying Mithril, you're selling coin. Yeah, that 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 you know, that, that it's all it's all one and the other. But but the only function that money has is as a means to make transactions more liquid, to make it easier to buy and sell. Uh, and and so it's just interesting in and of itself what the value of money is within the game. If you're talk um, about value of money without going back to what I think the the term was sort of coined in Maelstrom days of cakeonomics, of um what people are willing to pay for food and drink on the field using IC money, what people are willing to pay on the field for um, crafted at home, and I brought it with me to sell items, because those are a totally different type of value. Um, and, and often the, the values relative to things which you buy to do something within the game mechanics can be very, very strange. They could be a little distorted with that shadow of the doubt. I mean, I think if you look statistically, there are restaurants you can go to in this world of ours where, you know, you can pay a, a simply eye-watering amount of money for a, a meal. You know, there are bottles of wine you can buy that cost as much as a small house. Uh, so actually... Most of us don't move in those circles, so we look at the price of extraordinary luxury goods, and 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 we think well, that's insane. And then we look at it in the game, and and clearly the guys selling home brewed mead or whatever are not selling an extraordinary luxury good, uh, but actually within the context of the setting, they they kind of are. They're selling a luxury good, uh, and so it commands a massive, massive premium. There's other um, factors. Um, we talked about, uh, this is a conversation from back in Maelstrom days, but um, where you have this sort of a large gathering of people and you ha you will have people selling stuff at vastly overinflated prices, and that very much happens in the real world. If you go to a festival, you will see someone selling what is a £2 tent for a vastly inflated price because they know there are people there who need that £2 tent. The Klondike effect, if you look up the gold rushes, 
uh, I think I think eggs were selling for their weight in gold. I'm sure that's the, the it might be, um, you know, it might not be true, but that story reflects the fact that eggs were very, very rare in the Klondike. You had to bring them a long way. Gold was quite common. It was they were digging it out of the hills. And so eggs were worth their weight in gold. Um, <laughs> think value is a mutable commodity that, the th- you know, everybody wants things, wants to go, well, what is this worth? I want to know what is this worth? Where's the price list? Uh, if you come from a game that literally has no economics, it might well just have a price list. A healing potion costs X, a magic sword costs Y. Uh, and those players are often confused when they come into a game like Empire and go, where is the, what, what, what are things worth? And they want to know, they want to know as a number what something is worth. And our game does not support that in any way because it's just worth whatever anyone will pay for it at the moment and that's dependent on its scarcity it's dependent on how much money they've got and as we've already said it's dependent on their role playing and their character and what they want to achieve I think it can also really be influenced by what else is going on in in the wider game world I love watching how the uh, prices change between uh, day one and day two of the uh, public auction different resources I can even if I didn't sometimes I know what's going on that's making a particular resource scarce or a particular resource in high demand but other times something will change and I'm like oh I want to find out what is going on that's made made that one become more more sought after this particular (laughs) yes this particular festival Um, iridescent gloaming was the, the, the obvious example of that at the um at the the first event of this year where there was a big thing going on around scarcity of iridescent gloaming and it was absolutely there i didn't need to know that in advance to to be able to see that on the price list that that it it was more valuable more sought after at that point yeah that's really nice there's a there's a for the maths nerds there's a story that the numbers are telling <laughs> it's uh but uh, the story isn't just math the story is what's happening in the field it's the role playing it's the plot it's everything that players are trying to accomplish you, you could see that the math is simply a reflection of it it's, it's a way to quantify it you can see it there just as you can see it in the role playing people have sorry go on no i was gonna say uh, at the risk of kicking off a monologue um why you mentioned earlier on before we we started talking specifics that that value and worth and economics is something that makes a game innately more low fantasy mm. what what does that mean well i think i mean yeah okay so monologue time i mean high fantasy low fantasy means different things to different people uh, traditionally i think uh, 10 20 years ago that the definition tended to high fantasy was dragons and magic rituals and flying castles and spells and stuff and empire has a bunch of those things it has a lot of what i would call the trappings of high fantasy it's got dragons and magic and spells and stuff but i think it, it is absolutely a low fantasy uh, game and because of economics and what i mean by low fantasy is very much about the difference between a mythic reality uh, a story reality and an economic reality a real reality so here's a classic example lord of the rings which most people know of is a classic uh, myth it's a story they go on an epic journey they throw the one ring into the pit of doom they destroy it that the, 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 the fell lord is blah 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 nobody there's one moment in the whole story whether they question whether that is actually the right thing to do the council of rivendell and boromir who is our one economic actor and probably you know ends up going slightly mad because he's in the wrong story he is a low fantasy character in a high fantasy story says hang on a minute 
Let's not throw the one ring into the pit of doom. Let's just use this enormous chuffing weapon as a weapon to beat up the Dark Lord. That's, uh, they don't call it that. The Dark Lord is Voldemort from, from <laughs> Harry Potter. But, you know, all these stories are the same. All high fantasy stories are ultimately good versus evil. There's a terrible quest, good triumphs, evil ends, bish bosh, the end. Boromir says... Let's use this one thing. It's a really good weapon. It'll save thousands of lives. And he's promptly informed of what a terrible idea that is by all the other high fantasy characters who say, no, 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 disaster. That, we must not succumb to evil. Um, there are modern uh, fantasy stories that are much more low fantasy. Uh, and, and Empire is very much rooted in that modern tradition of fantasy literature. It's a game where... There is no sense of good versus evil. The fundamental distinction in Empire is us, the Empire, versus them, the barbarians. And actually, you're constantly faced with the problem that there is not enough money to do everything you want. There's that the, the, Everything has, and, and more crucially, and this is the key, every decision you take has painful consequences of some kind or another. At the end of Lord of the Rings, they throw the One Ring in, they destroy Sauron, and everyone lives happily ever after. Nobody looks back afterwards and says, you know, I'm still not sure that was the right decision. Now, everybody's trying, everybody's glorious and celebrating. Brilliant, we, we did the right thing, we solved the plot, we destroyed the, the Sauron. Perfect. Every, every, everything went right. Nobody says... Yeah, but look at the, let's count the costs of what happened. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Gondorians died in this battle. We could have saved millions of lives if we'd just used this one ring as a weapon to destroy Sauron. There's a no sense at all of any kind in that narrative that the decision they took might have been the wrong one. And that's because there are actually no decisions to take in that story. At no point in that story does any character make a credible choice between two viable alternatives and i think low fantasy is a type of larp in which you make choices you're faced with a set of options none of which are palatable to you none of which are yes that's the one i want if we create giving you a menu where you're like i want that and i don't want any of the others we've probably got our job wrong as plot writers we've created a set of options in front of you where you're sat there thinking all of these things have got terrible consequences and the choices which one do i pick which and that that and that choice is down to your characterization it's down to your role playing it's down to the role playing of everyone else in the field but that choice is only meaningful because things have a cost and things can only have a cost if things have worth and, uh, and obviously uh, we we tricked lots of people into becoming economic actors, some of them without realising it, through the personal resource system. Every player in the game has uh, is bringing in a consumable, effectively. Yeah, that is true, but I, I think that, that is much more about individual and personal economics. What I'm talking about is the grand scale of the story here. Let's take the recent account that lots of people would probably be familiar with. Uh, they, players were fighting the Yatoon in the morn, a terrible ritual has been performed and many people have died. Why might that decision have been made to perform that terrible ritual? Well, the answer to that is really, really, really clear. You take that choice because it also kills many, many Yatoon. So it kills thousands. I don't know. Graham could tell us how many of their enemy were killed. Um, it brought a set of advantages 
and it had a set of costs. Um, in a high fantasy game, you would simply have rolled onto the battlefield, defeated the Yatoon, everyone would go home glorious, and the triumph. Or, actually, let's be clear, sometimes you fail in the high fantasy story. Sometimes the heroes go out valiantly, and they all die, and it's a glorious defeat. And everyone still agrees that what they did was right, even though they'd all died, because it's, 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 it's a sim, it's, it, there's no decision to make. There is only success or failure. Um, Empire isn't really about success or failure. It's about the decisions. So that choosing to cast that ritual or choosing not to cast that ritual seems at first like a military or a magical question. It feels like uh, a big military strategic decision. but And it is. It absolutely is a big, a massive strategic decision. But because it, it's a strategic decision because the Empire has limited armies. The Empire has limited armies because it has limited mithril. It has limited mithril because everyone wants to buy the mithril it has. Everyone wants to buy the mithril it has because everyone has a personal resource that they want to upgrade with mithril. Everything is connected. The fact, the, so in a weird way, yes, the fact that every player has a personal resource is literally the reason why the Empire just cast a ritual to kill thousands and thousands of civilians in the morn. Those two are intimately connected and tied into the whole design of the game. Couldn't everybody just share? <laughs> That's a wonderful question. Yeah. Do we want to see if anybody else wants to talk about sharing for a moment or two while you, uh, while you get your voice back? <laughs> No, no, Mike can go on. <laughs> that is um, a Mac question, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, everybody could just share. And that is clearly the high fantasy motif. Um, it, there's a love, again, go back to Lord of the Rings. One elf goes, one, one uh, dwarf goes, four hobbits, uh, a per, uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's a ref, everybody shares the burden of throwing the one ring into the pit of doom. Um, it, there's a sense in, High, because in a high fantasy story, there's no meaningful choices to make. Um, everybody will share because it, the, the, your resources don't achieve anything other than to defeat the great evil. They have no value. There's no economics. There's no worth to these things. If you're playing a high fantasy game, you might have a pouch full of money, but the money doesn't do anything. It has no. There's no economic potential to it. It can't. You can only have that level of sharing if nobody has personal goals, or rather if everybody's personal goals are aligned in exactly the same direction. And the thing about Empire is we've got 1,400 plus people on a field, all with personal goals. We ask them to have personal goals. It's a prerequisite of creating your character, is to give yourself personal goals, to think about what does your character want, which is only yours only your path and that can be the same as your in-character brother or sister it can be similar it can be different but it will be yours and that will influence what again goes back to that that is what creates your personal value tells you what is important today what you are willing to sacrifice what you want more than anything else and that's going to put you at odds with people because they're going to want the same thing you want faster than you or they're going to want the opposite of what you want or they want something else which needs the same resources as you want so that puts sharing off the table yeah absolutely and we've worked 
incredibly hard throughout, you know, sort of four years of running the game and three years of designing the game to try and do everything we possibly can to encourage selfishness. It is absolutely the whole game is trying to encourage selfishness. And what I mean by selfishness is not the classic kind of I've got as much money as I can. Selfishness is about um it's about personal agendas as 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 eleanor said it's about personal motivations i might want my i want my character to be rich or i might want my city in the league to be better than the other cities in the league or i might want the league to be doing better than the brass coast or i might want the eastern front to be secure and not concerned about the western front there are a a, a million different you know there's an infinite array of different personal desires that you might want to have uh, and that we are trying to encourage and support uh, and, and that creates selfishness that creates conflicting interests that creates people who've got opposed values and opposed goals uh, and the whole game is trying to create and endorse and support a, 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 an ecosystem of characters with opposed goals okay term we used in design a lot was the grim specter of fair play <laughs> yes damn that guy <laughs> it's interesting actually to stop for a second and just consider you know this is it is totally not the only way to do this i you know thinking about ian andrews mwo games that i used to play many many years ago and you would get a 30 page brief for your character and reading it straight away you'd be reading going, oh yeah tick that tick that as you saw these opposed goals that you were being given as your character to play at the event knowing damn well they're saying you really want to achieve this and that somewhere out there some other player is receiving another sheet of paper that says they want to achieve the, the polar opposite of what you want to achieve. So there are there are lots of really great story ways to to, uh, to create opposed goals and to create conflict by characters coming into opposition with each other. And we don't use those. We don't use any of those tools at Empire, uh, and largely because that's not an approach that that, that we are that, that that fits our style. But but also because I don't think it works well on a game with fourteen hundred players. We can't give fourteen hundred players the detail and time and effort that a 50, 100, 150 person game can do. So we use an approach instead, which is based on encouraging people to have their own motivations, giving things economic value and worth, gives people a reason to oppose that, uh, to oppose each other that comes out of their own character creation rather than out of anything we've given them. And, and it, it's, it's a kind of organic approach rather than a, a narrative approach. It's, a, uh, I hate the terms, but some people might call it simulationist or whatever rather than narrativist. We talked a lot about armies and I said at the start, you know, there's a reason why we're doing this now, talking about this now before we talk about foreign relationships, that the same thing happens in diplomacy. Uh, you know, you might really, really want to create an alliance between your nation and the Assadians. And that will bring a set of economic benefits. It will bring a set of cultural benefits, a, a set of magical benefits. But it will come with a set of costs. It will come with a set of challenges. And, and the, the essence for the game, I see sometimes when talking to players, the assumption that the foreign diplomacy is like a riddle. It's like, I've met the Sphinx, the Sphinx has given me a riddle, and again, the Sphinx is a classic example of a high fantasy story. Um, you meet the, the Sphinx, it gives you a riddle, you solve the riddle, the Sphinx flies away, da-da-da, adventure sorted. Um, and there's an assumption that, that, that maybe foreign diplomacy is like a riddle, and you simply have to solve it. 
and it is it's the polar opposite of that. There's no sense at all in which we expect the players to make peace with the Assyrians or peace with the Samar or, or, or go to war with the Samar, go to war with the Grendel or go to war with the Thule or any of these choices. Each one of them is simply loaded with reasons why it's a good thing and reasons why it's a bad thing. It's a, it's a palette of choices that you can make that basically interact with your own desires, your own agendas, your own goals. And it, it's just down to making a choice. It's just, do I want X or do I want Y? Can I persuade everyone else they want X? If I can, we'll get X. If I can't, we won't. How aware do you think people are of this underpinning on the field, Alan? I I think one of the, I was just thinking while the, Matt was talking there, one of the clear things I've seen of that over the last few years was the um, offers of uh, resource trade um, from foreign powers and uh, it took a little while to settle in that it, those weren't automatically a great thing mm-hmm. to start with people were seeing them as oh we're being offered this additional inbound resource from from outside the empire woohoo oh hang on off the back of slaves oh, off the back of slaves uh, ship really hates slaves um, <laughs> uh, but but the things we can do and we can free the slaves and we can do it. Yeah, but still slaves. And that has been a creep over the last couple of years. And really sort of been great to see that sort of that thematic good decision, bad decision, good for the empire, bad for our reputation, <laughs> good for our bank balance, bad for our sense Mortal of self-worth. Souls. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and one thing that's happened as part of that is, um, there's been a bit of a shift in some ways of where different national backgrounds see themselves fitting into the economic game because it was dominated early on by obviously the league but also the very resource rich nations um to a certain extent so um Vrushka with lots of mines and things that they could sort of trade for um brass coast have traded everything but more and more there's been um high guard getting involved and becoming economically uh, active because of getting people to think about what are the implications of that purchase what is that doing what are you doing with it why are you doing it um so the the thought behind the the economic machinations has become much more clear in in the next last couple of years um so yeah it's definitely definitely is playing out on the field cultural imperialism by foreign nations <laughs> we, I, I think one of the things you've hit on that's really really nice and really important is that we talk a lot about value and worth the, the idea that things have a value in the game and people assume what we mean is a quantifiable value they assume we you mean this is a pile of resources that i am going to sell to you for x for y and that's what people think of when they think about economics i've got 10 wains of mithril you've got 40 crowns i give you x for y but as Ellen has just beautifully illustrated, the value of your soul is both something that is for sale and is not for sale in economic terms. I can't literally give you some money and go away with your soul, but, but, but there are huge unquantifiables. There are huge intangible things. How you feel about slavery, how you feel about the Grendel, how you feel about the Assyrians. All of these things are completely intangible, but they have value to you. They have uh, worth and the game will expect you to put them on a scales and measure how you feel about those things versus how you feel about 
25 wanes of white granite. In a way, we made that very explicit, of course, with the orc concept of worth. Yes. The, the, what an item is, the story that's associated with it, um, the, the, it changes the, 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 the worth of the item, the value of the item is changed by its context within the fiction, within the story of the game. And virtue economic course. Mm, so yes, of course. Pitting, pitting the virtues against each other in terms of that can actually literally make the value, the economic value, the financial value of something change. Um, and the, I mean, the obvious one of that being the sort of prosperity versus loyalty versus ambition argument around the uh, the private auction and the acquisition of of valuable objects for their own sake, and um, w- which had obviously had an impact on the the private auction and, and its demise. I'm surprised it's taken us so long to to bring up the auctions because obviously it's difficult to talk about the economics of empire without touching on the bourse. And you have more experience of the auctions than the rest of us, Eleanor. Do you want to give us just a quick rundown on Andy, how the auction works? Yeah. Before we go there, there's one thing. Sure. There's one last thing I think we've missed. I think it's really relevant here. Mm. Um, we talked about how economics impacts the uh, the military game, how it impacts the the foreign the, the, the foreign relations game. Of uh, course, the obvious one I missed out is how it impacts the faith game, which Eleanor has just touched on. There's a there's a faith to faith conflict, but the single most valuable resource in our entire game, purely on a denomination, purely on a how much coin people will stack up to pay for it, is actually religious. It's truly our. That, that you, you can just look at the numbers and without a shadow of a doubt, putting a single truly out on the table will outbuy any any other item in the game. And yet, truly out has no economic value, none whatsoever. I mean, it just it achieves zero that is economic. It, 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 you don't it, it doesn't you know, it's, it's not like a herb. It doesn't heal you. It doesn't produce any meaningful game outcome. And yet. It is the single most valuable substance in the game. Um, what we did when we overviewed the uh, religion game was we created an alternative economic use for Liao. You could use it to create a shrine. And lots of feedback said, that's lovely. No one will ever use it for that. It's so valuable, it is inconceivable that it will ever be used for that. And we said, so we thanked everyone for their feedback, said, thank you. We, we, we feel we know what we're doing. Um, you know, we, 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 under, you know well, we appreciate that's your perspective. Literally within a, a couple of events of doing that, people are using Truly Out to create a shrine. They're taking the most valuable substance in the game that has a clear, well-marked, uh, intended purpose, and they're using it for something else. And that is only a meaningful choice, and it's only a contested choice in a world in which the supply of Truly Out is limited, and a world in which the decisions that you take about what you do with the Truly Out are absolutely free for the players to make that they are they're neither good nor bad they are simply choices and that and so the, the point is that that economic the fact the idea that the game is economic in the sense that you're making decisions infests every single part of the game every part yeah run over so let's talk about private auctions this is the bit where i think we'll probably get more into numbers and and, and buying things and selling things. This is much more about if you're playing the trading game. This is probably of interest, or at least passing interest to you. So, yes. But Go of course, on. one of the one of the advantages of the public auction is that anybody can attend it. That's what makes it a public auction. Yeah, explain the public auction, actually, Eleanor. So yeah, for the benefit of anyone who's never been to the public auction, um, 
both on the Friday and Saturday nights of each event, there is a, a public auction held where there'll be um, between 45 and 60 uh, sort of lots which are sold. Um, and the m majority of those are um, herbs, artisan crafting uh, resources and a, a few uh, mithril, white granite and weirwood. Well, that's the place where it's easiest to see um, what the financial worth of these things are sometimes. Um, but equally, what are people, even if you're not going in there to buy them in bulk, it's almost worth being there to see what the person that you might be buying it off later has bought it for. It's, <laughs> it's a way to see actually what, what, what is the, what's the cash and carry rate for uh, these items. And, and how does that um, match up with what you're paying as a, a one a one off uh, one measure of X uh, in the field when you find that you're one short? How many pub public auctions do you run an event? So there are two public auctions at each event. Right. And effectively, that's a bit of a cooperative thing in advance between. I mean, you run it all on the day, but you check yeah. in with me and Graham and Rath beforehand if we want to change what other commodities we're putting in. Yeah, absolutely. So things vary um, based on what's going on in the wider empire. That is reflected in the um, in what's available in in the auction. Because if something has happened in the empire, which means that um, Johnny Herb owner player uh, Herb Garden owner player has got a boon in their um, what's cropped up in their their downtime, they've got more herbs. We reflect that into the um, into the public auction so there will be more herbs available so hallowing of the green world created a boost in the total amount of herbs available in the empire so it was reflected um equally when there were empire-wide mana shortages the amount of mana available in the auction was a, was reduced not just for one event either it took a while to then come back up to the sort of stable level um there so it's what, yeah, what gets put out there that's really is... interesting because I think you might naively imagine that we would use the public auction as a way to counter any gluts or any shortages of the commodity that are happening in the field. But what you've what you've said actually is that is, is just revealed exactly how PD operate. If there's a glut of something, we put more of it into the game to emphasise that glut. If there's a shortage of something, we take more of it out of the game to emphasise that shortage. We're not at, at, the public auction is not looking to stabilise prices. It's looking it's it's looking to increase liquidity. It's looking increase, to unbalance them to an extent. We're, we're giving it a gentle push as it heads off in the direction. Of careering into instability um, it's almost I mean, the, the microcosm of the empire yeah. as a whole because these the lots which are put in they don't represent something which the civil service has a load of and we're releasing it in out of our storerooms it represents individual citizens elsewhere in the empire who don't come to anvil who are putting in lots just like citizens who attend at anvil are putting in their lots um in and they have an opportunity to do that uh, to sell them in the auction. So it's this is trying to represent the the citizens of the wider empire who are sending their sending their stuff to the big market to sell. 
but of course what they're experiencing is obviously similar to what people in the empire are experiencing so that shortage flows through i think that the thing that's you know we find the the public auction really useful for a number of reasons uh one is it's our go-to point when we want to know the price of something we want to know what is if i'm going to send an npc out into the field to try and buy green iron for whatever reason my starting point is to ask well what is green iron worth and the answer to that is as the game organizer i have not got the slightest idea what green iron is worth i don't play the game so I literally have no clue. But what's a really, really useful tool to find out what it might be worth in the field is to go to Eleanor and say, Eleanor, what's Green Iron selling for at the public auction? Uh, and, of course, Eleanor has all that data to hand. And uh, some player might say, well, that, that, you know, what it goes through at the public auction is not what it goes through in the field. You've, you've not got the correct, you've not got the true value of Green Iron. And my response to that would be there is no true value. If you look instinctively, there's a cognitive bias around behavioral economics in which people think that things have a value. They think that, 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 that there should be somehow a fair value or a true value or a correct value. And actually, that, that, that makes no sense in any kind of three market economics. There's just whatever value anyone is willing to pay for it at the given time. And what's uh, instructive about that, the, the, so the public auction tells us exactly what the public auction tells us. It says, this is what it goes for on the public auction. And, that's and it a really also tells design. us what it goes for on a Friday night compared to a Saturday night. Yes, so if I was yes. asked, an NPC is going out, they're going to want to get hold of 20 measures of, say, green iron, um, and 20 ingots of green iron. And my response to that question would be, when are they going out? Yeah. Because is there a difference? There, it's normally, things go for slightly more on the Saturday um, and on the Friday of the following event, they'll go for slightly less than they went for at the, uh, at the, at the Saturday before. But it's doesn't it stabilizes if you look at it over a year. Um, but it will it will go up and down um, quite a lot. Um, and that's exactly what we'd expect to see. That's exactly what we would expect to see. And why would we expect to see it? Because on Friday night, we give everyone a pack and everyone in their pack has got a load of resources. Classic, this would affect would be herbs and mana crystals. So on you know, Friday night, there's a glut of herbs and mana crystals, and maybe people are selling the excess herbs and mana crystals. So the price on and the public auction on a Friday night is ever so slightly depressed. But after a day of, of event trading, and crucially, after a day of people using up the supply of herbs and mana crystals, or taking the green iron and thinking, right, I've got that now. I need that to make that sword this downtime. So I'm not trading that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put that away in my tent because that's that's banked. So effectively, the materials get used exactly the same way the herbs and the mana crystals do. But what doesn't get used is your money. Your money because it can't be used. It, it literally can only sit in your hand or move to another player's hand. So on Saturday, when the the, the herbs and the mana, if some of them have been used you'd expect the price to go up slightly. So it... it, it there's a desperation a, factor as well. It's sort of like, I need this by the end of the weekend. So the beginning of the weekend, what you'll pay for it will be lower than what you'll pay for it at the end of the weekend when you're sort of going, I really need this. I will up the price I'm prepared to pay. Ah, I, so what I'm hearing is uh, I should go out and buy everything on Friday night when things are cheaper. And sell it inside. Interestingly... What you see from the seller's point of view, though, is that people who regularly put things in with me for um, for the private auction, a few will put things in on, on the Friday, but often they go in on the Saturday. 
And that's often because they've got an idea of what they want to get for it. And they'll give themselves a day and a half to try and get that price and be willing to accept less by the time they put it in the auction because they haven't been able to sell it individually. Yes. And that but, it conveniently also matches the point where everybody is um, knows what they want by that point. They know what they've run out of time to get hold of. So they're actually willing to pay more. So it's, it's interesting how those two things meet up. A, that's a beautiful example of the kind of hedging strategy. Because what we've all just discussed and what the data has shown, and I've got actually, I've got data from Maelstrom, anecdotal data that would show very similar things, that basically the price, the coin price of the commodity rises as the event continues so these people who've spent friday and saturday trying to sell the product at x and failing should actually logically hang on to that herb or that mana crystal because the price is going to continue to rise um but instead having failed to get the price they want when the market is depressed they put it into the the public auction and and effectively hedge their bets because they should be hanging on to it, but 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 by putting it in the auction, they kind of they, they put a floor under it. Say, because obviously the risk is they get to the end of the event and have not sold the item. That's the financial, and then they don't have the coin to do whatever they want to do going forwards. So effectively, as the, the, the auction becomes a kind of a way of insuring yourself against failing to sell. And again, that comes back to everyone having their own things that they want to do, because the person who's got these beggars lie or whatever they've got, um, they're running out of time to get the money which would allow them to get what they want. And that's why they don't hang on to it, because they need to have time uh, to complete their own objectives. And if they didn't have their own personal objectives, then they wouldn't do that. Yeah, I, I, that, the public auction, I think, I mean, it's really useful to us. Um because, as we said, it gives us a set of prices. It lets us exacerbate uh, ongoing plots by increasing gluts and increasing shortages. Uh, and it also just creates another point of contact with the economic game. If you're looking for boss resources you might, and you want six mithril to upgrade your, your military unit or whatever, uh, you might legitimately say, I could never afford to buy a boss position, and you almost certainly can't. Uh, but there are other points of contact. There are other ways to get Mithril, and one of them is to go to the public auction and try and outbid the cartels who are there bidding for those resources, trying to frantically maintain their monopoly positions. It gives you another another avenue, another way to compete, and it creates more sources of things going into the system, and that's always good from a role-playing point of view because it means people can move around the system and try other routes, other options. The other thing that we see in public auction is um, mostly on the Saturday evening is people selling other things. Um, so inevitably they'll be um, sought after um, alcohols. And generally the things which get sold in there are things which have made a reputation on the field for their quality and for the role play that goes with them. So they're things which have developed their own value mm. um, over the, the last few years of the game um, and can be sold and also things which are tied in with ongoing elements of the story so things which belong to famous people things which are associated with parts of history um, and things like that which people they have acquired them through whatever role play uh, means and they want to pass them on and think there might be a market for them um, so there's that but also if somebody really wants something for a reason the public auction is somewhere where they can come and they can monopolise the floor for a moment and say, I really need to get this amount of this resource in order to do this thing. And 
if you as a collective of people and that can be up to 50 or 60 people in one tent all of whom have money and have things they want to do with that money and they want these things for a particular reason and it can appeal to those citizens and say if you're with me on the importance of this thing then um let me buy it at a a reasonable rate and equally you'll get people who've already got lots of that thing that they want will say well if you don't get what you need by the end of the auction come and see me so it's an opportunity to rally support in a very similar way to the floor of conclave it doesn't get used very often for that but it does happen that's really fascinating if we were running sotheby's uh, obviously we would take those people out into the street and have them expelled from our auction house and never let them in again <laughs> as they stood there role-playing at the other um, bidders trying to depress the prices of the goods Someone sold Someone have this house. beggar removed from my auction house. <laughs> Fortunately, we're not running Sotheby's. And actually, um, there's a, occasionally an assumption that efficiency is, is the point of empire, that, 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 you know, that, that, that the empire should find the way to be most efficient, to use its arms most efficiently or to run its, um, its, its auction house most efficiently. And actually, we're literally there to try and discourage efficiency. Efficiency is the enemy of role-playing. Efficiency is, is, although we want to encourage selfishness, what we want is to encourage people to go, nobody buy green iron. I need it for this incredibly important thing that I'm doing in which I make a green iron mountain shaped like a fish and appease the fish man. Bah! That, that, that inefficiency, that allocation of resources to the wrong thing, the wrong thing, quote unquote, is the heart of role playing in our game. It is, that is a choice. You're saying, I'm going to prioritize some arbitrary and it is arbitrary some arbitrary mathematical definition of value i'm going to sweep that aside and go i don't give a shit that x is the most effective way to use ilium or y is what we should use mithril for i don't give a shit because my character wants to do this thing so i'm asking everybody to help me do this thing um so yeah so if people turn up at the auction and try and persuade everyone not to bid awesome just awesome Oh, Sotheby's would never allow it, but it's what Empire is about. Should, should we do the, the elephant in the room of, of, of the rampant inflation? Uh, we could. We could do the private auction. Sorry, I, I'm having flashbacks to too many Facebook arguments about what things are worth <laughs> and why efficiency is good. We've got to remember, of course, that efficiency is also a role-playing choice. There are characters in our game who th- whose goal is to improve efficiency in character. Yeah. That, that and they're is... monsters. So. They are monsters. <laughs> No, it's efficiency. Efficiency in the cause of your, in, in, in the service of your political cause. Wonderful. You know, if you're a general in the military council explaining why retaking Ok, or capturing Okhodov from the Thule is absolutely the most efficient way possible for the empire to increase its mythal supply. Good on you. Do you just, yeah, you know, Keep going. Just awesome, awesome, awesome. Uh, putting the claim of efficiency to the service of your political goal is amazing. If efficiency itself is your political goal, that feels slightly odd to me. Uh, but 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 it, it's reasonable. Maybe, you know, whatever your character is simply motivated by a hatred of waste. I don't know. Um, but but I think that, that, that I think that all of those efficiency arguments are utterly uh, intellectually bankrupt intellectually bankrupt there isn't a uh, simple 
one-to-one way to simply demonstrate A is better than B. Everything in, in the game is loaded with choices. So actually uh, claiming that this is a better route than that or this is a better way to spend your money or a better way to spend your mana is just a political act. It's a role-playing decision that you are making. And in my view, anyone... Yeah, we said we weren't going to talk about player strategies, but anyone claiming efficiency for efficiency's sake is either deceiving themselves or, better still, I hope, deceiving everyone else. In the Beca- so, so arguably, we're saying that an appeal to numbers is uh, just as valid and uh, weighty as an appeal to virtue or uh, an appeal to emotions or an appeal to... Uh, to, to anything else it's simply another thing that you role play about it's not got some holy status as a as a as a as a, as a separate force that is always wins arguments absolutely i mean that that's yeah <clears throat> and that goes right back to what we talked about at the start how economics underpins everything in empire totally totally agree with you 100 i can say we must invade okadov otherwise three thousand people will die Oh, and I've quoted this number of 3,000. And you go, well, if we don't invade Okkadoth, only 2,500 people will die. Clearly, invading Okkadoth is more efficient. The numbers are, are just, are literally just that. They're numbers. They don't have a magic power to them. They don't have some, they're not some unstoppable force. There is no intellectual way that you can demonstrate that a set of numbers is superior to another set of numbers in the same way that you cannot intellectually go, we should do this because prosperity, your argument about loyalty is wrong. That, that the game just, that no one would accept that there was a mathematical way that you could demonstrate that prosperity is greater than loyalty or loyalty is greater than prosperity. We all understand that those those call to arms, those political diatribes about loyalty versus prosperity versus wisdom versus visions are purely role-playing decisions. But actually, they are about the numbers as well. <laughs> the guy saying we should spend 30 mithril to build a new army or to reinforce this, or he is just making a political, emotional role-playing choice. I can't help but think that you have just given the, the people like the Greg Weirs of this world a new character concept, proving mathematically which virtue is better than which. <laughs> and I look forward to the outcome, I really do. This schism is only going to last so long. We need a new one. <laughs> I think it's interesting how we've talked about um, the, the values of sort of selfishness and uh, inefficiency and, and the, the, the false virtue of sharing. Um, and that leads very well into the private auction and to a certain extent explains why it didn't work quite the way that we hoped it would um because we did have the richest people in the empire um given access to the shiniest things um and paying the least amount of money for them as possible um and that became yeah do you want to just uh, do you want to just summarize the private auction because obviously a number of people who've only started this year will never have encountered that particular thing Yes, yeah, so the private auction um, was a, a special privileged auction only accessible to people who already had a boss seat. So they already had the control of a mithril, weirwood, white granite or ilium uh, seat. And once per event, they would be able to come together in a private room only accessible to them and uh, priests bearing right of witness um, to have the opportunity to buy um, special, magical, mysterious, historical, etc. items, um, which had been 
um, sourced from across the empire and beyond by the um, Boss Civil Service Acquisitions Team, also known as created by the plot team. Um, and those things had, they were part, sometimes they were part of ongoing uh, plots, but sometimes they were part of, they were, had been created for that. And sometimes something would be created for that and actually in the process of that, uh, a, a cool other extra thing would, would be imagined. Um, and those things sh we hoped would be a point of real competition. This was an opportunity for the people with the biggest purses to get access to some of the coolest stuff. Um, but actually, what tended to happen was people would have a little chit chat and decide what who wanted what, and um, and then they would and come to a nice friendly nice. agreement about who would get. Yeah, well, I really want this one, and you really want that one, so I'll let you have that one if you'll let me have this one. So uh, and there are no horses in Empire, but there's certainly a lot of horse trading. When, when, um, we, were, when we were talking about um, about this in the original design of the game, I remember we, were, we mentioned it. Was it talking about like the Lamborghinis and whatnot? These are, these are the things that people with huge amounts of money would go out and buy for huge amounts of money. And a money is no object I will have. I mean, this should be oil barons getting hold of the Star of India diamonds. Yeah. And in fact, it was nothing like that. I mean, partly, we, we never quite managed to work out what Lamborghinis and the Star of India meant in game terms. So part of this problem is, uh, is down to the fact that we were... The sort of things we were offering were often no, variable. I, I know what a Lamborghini is in the game. What's a Lamborghini in the game? It's it's that guy who's turning up with a really good quality bottle of homebrew wine, or a yeah. plate of of of, uh, of of fine chocolates, or a or or a beautiful painting they've made. That that is the Lamborghini in the game. It's really hard. In a way, it was too early people. as well for some of the things we were trying to put out there because. The um, the worth and interest of historical items, items linked to particular uh, Eternals in the realms and things like that, it wasn't established. I, I don't think that was the, the fundamental problem. I don't think actually any of the things we're describing are the fundamental problem with it. The fact that there was a lack of competition, there was a lack of economic activity, people sort of shared all the stuff out and took what they wanted. Those are all symptoms of a problem. Um, but actually, the fundamental reason we got rid of it was because it was a total and utter design fail. And if we think about the reasons why we were trying to create, what, what, was, our, what was our purpose? Our purpose was to create the sense of exclusiveness and specialness about the bore seat holders. We wanted to we wanted to produce the smoke filled room effect. The idea that these wealthy, powerful people were meeting somewhere in private that was exclusive. The Garrett's Club, the kind of the sense that these people had a power that other people don't have. We wanted to give them a sense of exclusivity, and the private auction was designed to do that by giving them access to desirable things that other people wanted. And it just failed on every level. Um, and it, it, it failed to, I think it really failed to achieve that sense of exclusiveness and desirability. And actually, uh, it was it came at enormous cost. It required a huge amount of plot effort to generate these items each. So we were desperately slaving away, pouring a huge amount of effort to try and sustain something that really actually <clears throat> would be better sustained by a really nice 
palatial tent with a sideboard with some cheese and wine and some fine cigars that PD provided at the event and said, no, you're only allowed to go in there if you're a boss seat holder. That would literally have fulfilled the design goal far better than the private auction ever did and actually be vastly less quickly that off, Matt is not promising that at any future <laughs> Oh, if I had the money, if I had the money, I would do it tomorrow. I'd, I, 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 there's no doubt at all, if money were no object, I would absolutely have a beautiful, palatial, private, uh, private boss member's uh, lounge club where only they could go and they could sit there and have cheese and wine and cigars. If money was no object, that that in my opinion would improve the game for everybody, for every player. Those inside it would feel like they were the most powerful people in the world, and everyone outside would go, ah, those evil. Find a way to break them. Uh, yeah, where it did actually one. happen was is that a couple of hours before what the private auction, the timing of the private auction was early evening on a Saturday, which is on the Saturday afternoon, which is when the boss resource seats are auctioned. That is actually the time when the people with the highest net worth in the Empire get together and there's the perception of these sort of cabals and oppositional and the alliances and that's where it actually happens. It, it did it itself. Well, we, kind of, we kind of got wrong that we needed to put something in extra for it because... I, I, there's so many situations where um, some of a group of, um, or not even a group, where people from different nations decide that actually they're fed up of one of the other um, sets of people who already have a resource or a set of resources getting any more and will get together to oppose them. Um, and the, the competition is for the items which are already the highest value and worth to people, which are the boss resources. So it's, it does it itself. Um, it does, but I, I think I, 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 the, the point is that that was never what the private auction really could have or would have or should have achieved in the game. Um, it, it, it's much more that what you're talking about is the ruthless cutthroat competition, the moment when everybody sees who's got the money and who hasn't got the money, who can walk the walk and who is merely talking the talk. You're talking about the moment where effectively... That boss public auction of seats is the economic equivalent of a big bow. It's literally, that's the throwdown. Everybody turns up with all, all their money and all their bags and basically goes up against the other actors on the field and tries to throw down to get the most uh, seats they can. It, it's the battleground. What I'm saying is that, that, that what the boss would benefit from is the moment after when the field marshal goes into the Senate and tells everyone well, how the battle went. It's that, it's that, okay, you have won the battle, now enjoy the, the fruits of your rewards. And we, that's the bit we didn't get right. And we, because we couldn't create a beautiful room with cigars and brandy and fine leather chairs for them to lounge around in front of the roaring fire and, and, and roll up uh, one mithril notes and, and, and burn them on, you know, to keep themselves warm or whatever. Um, because we couldn't do that, we tried to sustain it with plot and it, and it just didn't work and it burnt us out. So we got rid of that. <laughs> And I'm positive about the fact we got rid of it. I, one of the things I'm really positive about Empire is that when we analyse something, we go, that has failed. We take it away and we either put a bullet in its head and just cut it or we redesign it and come back with a new attempt to, to make it work right. We, you know, we're four or five years into the game and we're still relentlessly assessing every part of it going, okay, 
can we improve that? Can that be better? Can that be done better? And, and when we sign something, we just think, yeah, this could be miles better if done another way. Then we do it. Mana, this podcast is already far too long. Please tune in again later for part two, Inflation and Monetary Policy.